Good morning. morning. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love, for your truth, for the way your kingdom runs. We ask that your spirit will join us today and enlighten our minds. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us, and we pray that we can be effective witnesses for him in this world, and that you will open avenues for this message to go forward. When we grow closer to you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Now, you know, it's August 1, and we have launched July 1, a new uh, uh, promotions program, sharing program, where every month we'll have a new resource that we will give away to people, no cost in North America. Um, if you live in North America, have a, have a U.S. postal address, you can request this, order this. We will send it at no cost and no postal cost. And, and our new resource, uh, Stephanie, come on out here, is a children's book. We finally have our children's book called God is Love, and Stephanie is the author, and uh, uh, Lewis Johnson is the illustrator, and he's done a fantastic job, and if you open the page, you'll see where you can say this book belongs to, and it is, uh, it's a beautifully illustrated book, and the story is amazing, and it takes through the opening of the great controversy in heaven, the, the design law uh, about how God built reality to, to operate, and, and the war in heaven over God's character, and the fall, and ultimately, uh, and you see how beautifully illustrated this is. For the next month, the month of August, if you'd like these to share, you can go to the website, and you can, uh, now I brought some for you here today. You can take up to five each with you, and you can have up to five for free um, if you're in the U.S. and North America. After the month of August, they will be available for sale. But during the month of August, these are free, okay? And you can order one, two, three, or five. You can't order four. (laughs) And that has to do with the postal weight. If you order four, it's a different cost than the one, two, or three. One, two, or three can be posted at the same rate. Five is its own cost, and that just makes it easier for us to package and send to not have to do a four. So anyway, so order and share. So thank you, Stephanie. We are doing lesson seven in the quarterly Making Friends for God, and the title is Sharing the Word. And in the first paragraph, it says, When we witness, we speak of Jesus. But what would we know about Jesus without the Bible? In fact, how much would we know about the great controversy, the love of God and the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and return of our Lord if we did not have the Scripture? This is a great point. Our witnessing is about Jesus. No question about it. Our witnessing is about Jesus. It's not about a denomination or a rule or a ritual, or a creed. Our witness is about Jesus. And who is Jesus? What would you tell someone about Jesus? He's love. He's God. As we witness about Jesus, what is it that it is important for us to witness about. Remember, remember Revelation twelve seventeen. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the remnant of her seed or the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What did Jesus give testimony about? 
Yes, his witness consistently. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I have brought you in his prayer in John 17. Jesus, this is Jesus praying. I have brought you glory, speaking to his Father, on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Here's the work. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world. I have revealed you the work to reveal the Father. I have brought you glory. Jesus' testimony to reveal the truth about God. How is this related to the three angels' messages and the eternal gospel and the final message of mercy to the world? Is there a relationship between the testimony Jesus gave, if you see me, you've seen the Father, the eternal gospel, the three angels' message, and the final message of mercy to the world? Are they connected in some way? Yes. How are they connected? Should be the same. They're the same message. <laughs> The same message, the eternal gospel is the gospel that's always been true. The gospel about God, that he is uh, a being of ultimate love and trustworthiness who was lied about by his enemy, and Christ came to show the good news that God is not like Satan revealed him to be. Final message of mercy, the truth about God's character of love. So when we witness about the word... Are we making it clear that Jesus is the living word? See, sharing the word, the title. Are we, we say, we're going to share the word of God. Are we making it clear that Jesus is the living word? Who became human in order to reveal God to us while simultaneously exposing Satan and sin and procuring the remedy to our condition. Are we making it clear that the word of God is not a text? Do we make that clear? Well, it's like there's power in the blood. It's the power is in the one who gave his blood. Right, and the blood. Power in the person who gave the word. And then when you, yes, did you all hear that? Okay, he said it's like power in the blood. The power is not in the red corpuscles. The power is in the one who shed their blood. And that's you decode the blood symbology of the Bible. The blood symbology of the Bible is the blood represents the life. And so the power is in the life. And the life of Jesus then takes us back to his living person. He's the one with the power. And we receive the life of Christ. But when you talk about sharing the word, when you ever hear it, we always think of the Bible. Yes. Sharing the word, sharing the Bible. And... If you think sharing the Bible, what's the purpose of sharing the Bible? To reveal Christ. She said to reveal Christ. The Bible's purpose is to reveal God to us, reveal Jesus and so forth. When we witness about Jesus, the living word, and we're going to come back to this idea of the living word many times, whose testimony was living out his father's character. Yes. Do we have to use the name... Jesus, to witness about Jesus. Yeah. Are there times when witnessing about Jesus may actually be more effective if we don't use that particular name? Yes. Now, as we look at the testimony of Jesus, what was Jesus' primary method of communicating and revealing God's kingdom, of king, truth, truth about his kingdom to people? His primary method? Parables. Parables. Now, I want to go through this with you. What did Jesus' parables reveal? Now, 
His parable certainly has some specific truths, and we'll see those as we go through. But have you considered that every one of his parables had a consistent overarching theme or thread that persistently and consistently exposed the difference between God's kingdom and the human kingdoms. In other words, all of his parables revealed design law and exposed the fallacy of imperial. Let's go through them. The, the parable of the lamp. You know, the, if you light a lamp, you don't hide it. The parable of the lamp, the light lamp is supposed to shine. See, if one lights a lamp and let it let the lamp do what a lamp does naturally. What's the result of lighting a lamp? You get light. This is the natural process of lighting a lamp. What kind of law does that reveal? One has to artificially interfere with that process in order to stop the light from shining. Put it under a basket. If you work against the light that's shining naturally, you're working against the, the natural operation of the laws of physics, design law. What about the speck in the log? You know, speck in the eye, move the log, okay? What's the natural result of having a larger object in your eye versus a smaller one? <laughs> one more pain, sure, that's a good one. But your vision is more impaired, the bigger the object, right? One cannot see clearly the larger the obstruction. The parable teaches the reality that lies obstruct the ability to discern. The more lies we believe, the greater the blindness we have. So if we want to be effective in helping others, we must first remove the distortions from our own minds. What kind of law is described here? It's again, design law. New cloth on old garment. What happens if new cloth is sewn onto an old, old piece of cloth? What's the result? When you wash the garment, what's the result? Tears a bigger hole. It tears a bigger hole in the garment. Why? Is there some ruling authority that inspe inspects uh, garment inspectors that go around and inspect whether a new piece is sewn on an old piece, and then they have the, the uh, law enforcement officers uh, you know, go and cut that piece out to make a bigger hole? Is that what happens? No. It's the natural process of how things work. Design law at work. This is the same lesson that's taught with the new wine and old wineskins that one of our class members wrote an excellent blog on. And I have the link in our notes that you can go and read that blog. Uh, it's brilliant, and I, I recommend that you go read it if you haven't read it. The parable of the divided kingdom. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why? What's the natural outcome of warring against yourself? Do you get stronger or do you tear down your strength and collapse? The system collapse. Do we see forces at work in America today that are designed to have internal that we war against ourselves because the real agenda is to get America to collapse? See, this is not the historic differences of politics where both sides of the political aisle actually had America being stronger at heart. They just had different policies and methods and ways they wanted to go about it, so they argued those ways and methods, but they all had in heart, let's have America be better and stronger. Today, you're actually seeing an agenda that wants to weaken this nation. And they're attacking and causing internal division because external attacks 
would only strengthen America. Every time we've been attacked externally, we've gotten stronger. We, we united. The United States gets stronger when we unite. We cannot be defeated from an external. So they are using these methods. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Watch for it. What about the parable of the sower? Why do seeds grow differently? Is it because God uses power to make seeds grow differently? Or are the seeds equally healthy when planted? The sunshine is equally bright and the rain is equally um, watering. What's the difference? The soil. Different soil. And it's teaching. And, and is that an imposed law or a natural law? It's how reality works. And so the difference of the seeds of truth are in the condition of the hearts that receive it. What about the weeds among the wheat? Why do weeds grow in a field? In any field, why do weeds grow? Do, are they planted or do they come up naturally? What happens if in your field of wheat, you see some weeds and you go out and start pulling up the weeds? What do you pull with it? Everything. Everything. So some of the wheat gets pulled up with it. What's the lesson? The unsaved are in the church with the saved. If we make it our business to go around and start disfellowshipping and expelling from our fellowship, people that we determine are the weeds, they have connections with people that are the wheat. And the people that are the wheat will get hurt and will also leave and be alienated. Is that an imposed rule? Or is that naturally what happens? They may be weak themselves. We may not be very good. That's also true. Yeah, we may pu- try to. We may actually pull up some wheat rather than even weeds. Misidentify. That's good. What about the parable of the mustard seed? What do mustard seeds naturally do if you plant them in a garden? They grow, and they grow to be the biggest plant, according to the. And once they become the biggest plant, what happens, according to the parable? They become shade for the birds and other things. Why do they become shade? What is because there's a ruling now? There's some 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 magistrate has ruled you're allowed to be shade now, <laughs> or that's the natural result of growing into a larger plant. You you cast shade when you have the truth come into your heart, the mustard seed. It grows up into the plant of love, and what does love do in your environment? It gives shade to the scorching, burning heat of the world's assaults. It relieves suffering. That's what it does. What kind of law is that? Design law, exactly. What about the uh, parable of the leaven? What is the lesson of the leaven? How does leaven work? Is it that God sends his angels to inspect all the people's dough, and those that have leaven in it, he works a miracle to make rise, and those that don't have leaven, he won't perform the miracle, and and it doesn't rise? Is that how it works? No. It's design laws. It's how things naturally occur. What about the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price? What is the natural result in human beings when they value something greatly? 
And what happens in human beings when they value something more than anything else in their entire life? What do they naturally do? Come on, this is not a trick question. They pursue it. Is that not true? If they have in their heart that that's the most important thing to them in the world, what do they do? They pursue it. Again, a description of design law, what naturally happens. What about the parable of the net? Why were some fish kept and some fish thrown away? This is the parable of the net. They went fishing, some fish were kept, some fish were thrown away. Why? Because of the condition of the fish themselves. The rotten fish were thrown out. The healthy fish were kept. There was no jury, no prosecutor, no defense lawyer, no judge rendering a verdict. It was the condition of the fish. So too, at the end of time, we are separated by the condition of our characters. Have we accepted Christ and been renewed to be Christ-like? Or have we rejected Christ and be hardened in selfishness? That's the two groups, the wheat and the tares at the end. The natural results. What comes out of a parable of what comes out of the mouth versus what goes into the mouth? Why is it that what goes into a person's mouth does not determine his cleanliness, but what comes out? Why? What kind of law is involved in this? Is the person unclean because someone hears what they say, reports them to the authorities, has a judicial review and a legal ruling that declares them unclean? I heard what you said. I reported it. We now have a ruling against you. Is that why they're unclean? Or does what comes out of the mouth reveal what's already in the heart? And it's the condition of the heart that determines. It's actual reality. It's reality-based. What about the lost sheep? What's revealed in that parable? Isn't it the heart of the shepherd, the heart of God, who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son? Doesn't it uh, does it teach that God was paid a high price, and because the price of a, a sacrifice of human blood that was innocent, it was so inducing to him that he decided to go out and save the sheep? Or that he loved the sheep so much he went and gave his only son to save them? Did the sheep have to do anything to get the shepherd to come looking? No. What's being taught here? The, pardon? You have to be lost. Do you have to be lost? Look. Hmm. The natural actions that take place when we love. When we love and God is love, it is the natural action for love to seek to save that which it loves. That's design law. God's character. Nothing legal going on here. What about the unforgiving servant? The one that had the big debt and the guy forgave it and then he went and beat up his other guy for a little debt. Remember that one? Okay. What causes the servant with the great debt to ultimately be lost? Yes. The lesson's taught very, is this a legal issue? This is not a legal issue. He had a legal right to claim that money. He was within the law to claim that money. That's not why he's lost. He's lost because grace was given him. But it didn't change his heart. And he remained selfish and hard-hearted despite the grace given him. He was lost because of the condition of his heart. What about the laborers in the vineyard? Oh, this is a great one. I love this one. You know, we went out and got some people at the early morning, got some people midday, got some people in the afternoon, got some people one hour to go. And they all came and worked. And he said, I'll pay you the first ones he got. I'll pay you a full day's wage. 
And the next one, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. And he lined them up. The ones that came last got paid first. And they all got the same pay. Does that sound fair to you? It doesn't sound fair. It's totally unfair if we have an imposed law view. But what if we change it slightly more? What if we make the story that those who worked all day were people of color and the person who worked only one hour were white people? And they all got paid the same. Is it fair? Is it fair? Do you see how the imposed law system of our world takes something and will twist it quite perversely? Let me show you. When you understand design law and God's system, this reward, it's totally fair because the reward, the pay that they receive, guess what it is? Eternal life. And the ones who got called early accepted Jesus in their life early in their life. And not only did they get eternal life, which the people, like the people on the cross got in the last hour, okay, they got to work with God their whole life. They learned how to work in the field, which is the field for human souls. Thus, they learned God's methods. They learned God's principles. They became more efficient in wielding the sword of truth. Their characters were more developed. They become more like the landowner. Whereas the one that came in the last hour, the thief got eternal life. He got the pay. But he didn't get all of his life working with the methods of the landowner. Do you see how design law goes? That's beautiful. It's skin colors irrelevant. There's no arbitrariness here. There's no prejudice, no bias. It's how reality works. And it exposes, this one exposes so effectively the fallacy of the imposed law view. As I'm going through this, you're seeing a theme. We're going to go through some more. Can you see that as these parables were building in society, what Jesus was doing with the parables? He was sowing seeds in their mind of, how reality works, design law, versus all the arbitrary rules that they were doing. And and the arbitrary rule givers were gaining or losing power over people. Losing power. And so they came to love Jesus more, or they hated him more. Now, now, as Jesus is presenting truth in parables, exposing over and over again, God's kingdom is the creator. He is the builder of the universe. His laws are design laws. This imperial law thing, it's a lie. It's Satan's lie. Exposing it over and over again. Do they meet him on the platform of evidence and reason and truth? Let's discuss the truth, Jesus. Is that where they meet him? Let's have an open, honest discussion of God's Bible truth. Is that what these opponents of him want to do? They do not. They throw trap questions at him to try to trap him in some legal technicality that can uh, cause the people to uh, think he's a fraud. And they slander him. Because they can't meet him on truth, because they're not interested in growing, because they don't want to have a discussion based on uh, what actually works. He's of the devil. He's of Beelzebub. He's using Satan's power. And, And in their culture, what is the worst slander you could say about somebody at that time? That he's from Satan. That's the worst. There's nothing worse than being from Satan, being from the devil, being from Beelzebub, being a pagan worshiping a pagan god. That's the worst. You see the same thing happening in society today. Except Satan isn't the worst thing you can call somebody in society today. 
You call them a Satanist, people don't care because, you know, there's lots of... You know, the worst thing you can call somebody inside today is a racist. And you see this happening when people try to present biblical truth, God's kingdom's truths, frequently they'll be called racist or bigot or sexist or something along those lines. Because the people who do it, they don't want to come and actually have a reason evidence-based, truth-based discourse and say, I'm eager to grow in truth and follow God's truth where it leads. They're not interested in that. They want to shut truth down. They don't want people to listen. So they label the bearers of truth with some terrible um, a slander that will tell you, don't listen to him. He's racist. Don't listen to Jesus. He's, he's a Satanist. This is the method. Watch for it. Keep going with the parables. The parable of the two sons. One says he will go out and work in the father's field, but doesn't. The other says he won't, but does. What's the lesson? What's revealed? It's a powerful truth that I can't tell you how many people in America don't understand and do not apply. It's a design law reality that's being exposed here. Actions speak louder than words. Jesus is exposing that regardless of what you say, it's what you do that matters. And right now, so many people are just being deceived by words. Not actually looking at actions, methods, principles, conduct. Just words. And that's why allegations are so destructive in society today. Because when you allege something, you don't have to actually prove it. You don't have to bring evidence anymore. Look what happened when one of the recent Supreme Court's justices' nominations. There were only allegations made, and that was enough for everybody. Well, if, if they say it, who are we to question it? We'll just accept it. Evidence not required. It's quite corrupt. Lovers of truth don't fall for that. Lovers of truth can hear what's said, but then they want to look to the evidence and see if the evidence is consistent with what's being said. The tenant farmer parable reveals the actual condition of the hearts of the people. Actions over and over again by the landowner to try and bring them into righteousness. And over and over again, they choose selfishness. They choose selfishness. They choose selfishness. Over and over again, they're lost in the end because of their persistent choice to resist all of the entreaties to bring them to righteousness. Marriage feast or the great banquet. Who is invited? Who's invited? Everyone's invited. Who attended? Just a few. Who decided who attended? Did they have a trial, a jury? Now, what about the, well, wait, somebody go, yes, they did. They inspected their clothing. If they didn't have the right clothing, they got kicked out. What's the metaphor teaching about the clothing? It's teaching the condition of the heart. That trying to get into heaven with an unrenewed heart, without partaking of the righteousness of Christ, without being reborn, renewed, having the law written on your heart and mind, you're unfit to be there. It's actual reality, condition of being that determines. And, how, and who decides who gets the righteousness of Christ and who attends and who, and who doesn't? Who makes that choice? We do. That's how reality works. Why? Because God can't change hearts and minds against the will of the person. The only way you get to be righteous is by you choosing and participating. If God were to enforce some type of righteousness against your will, he erases you. You, the individual, don't exist anymore. 
Freedom of choice. Ten virgins. What makes the difference between the wise and the foolish? Why don't lamps shine without oil? (laughs) Is there a rule that says you're not allowed to shine if you don't have oil? Or is it how reality works? Some don't have oil. Some don't have the Holy Spirit in their life. What they have is they have the lamp. The lamp is the Word of God. The Word of God we talked about a minute ago. They have it. They hold to it. They cling to it. They don't throw it away. But they have no oil. Think that through. What's that look like? These are legalists, folks. These are the legal Christians, the rule-keeping Christians, the enforcers, the the fruit inspectors among us. Do it my way. The list checkers. The penal substitution theology enforcers. They have their book. They have their list. They have their code. They have their rules. They don't have the Holy Spirit that renews the heart. Ten talents or gold coins. Ten talents or gold coins. What lesson? It's the law of exertion. If you have talents and you invest them and exercise them, you actually expand and get more. If you bury them and don't use them, if you don't use it, you design law, how reality works. The good Samaritan. What determined who was right with God? What is exposed is fraudulent. Remember, the priest goes by, the Levi goes by, Levi goes by, but the, the Samaritan stops and helps him. Who's right with God? The Samaritan. How many Sabbaths does the Samaritan keep? How much tithe did he pay? How many sacrifices at temple? How many kosher diets and meals did he eat? You see why they hated Jesus? Because he'd overturned all of their penal, legal, rule-keeping religion. It doesn't mean that paying tithe is wrong. It doesn't mean there wasn't benefit in the sacrificial service. But all of those principles were simply tools God was using to help bring people to have a change of heart. The giving of the tithes and offerings is to help us learn how to give, to live in harmony with the law of love, which is giving. We're so selfish, we don't want to give. It's just a tool to help our hearts, to connect us with God. Same thing with the sacrifice, a tool to educate and enlighten and to bring conviction. Just tools. But you can use all the tools and never have a change of heart. The Samaritan didn't use the tools, had a change of heart. That's what counts. They hated him. We kept all the rules. We worked so hard. We've done all this, and you're discounting it. The rich fool. What's it matter to gain the whole world and lose the soul? What determines the, the end? What, what law is involved here? The lost coin. Again, what's taught? God's kingdom. God uh, searches for that which he loves. What's the difference between the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son? The lost coin didn't know it was lost. But the owner searched for it and found it and brought it home. The lost sheep knew it was lost, but didn't know the way home. And the shepherd searched for it and brought it home. The lost son knew he was lost and knew the way home. And the shepherd or the father left him to come home. There are people lost in this world that don't even know they're lost. God is seeking them. There are people lost, they know they're lost. God is seeking them. uh, Because they're lost and they don't know the way. God is out there 
to bring them home. And there are people lost, they know they're lost, and they know the way home. And there's nothing God can do for them until they choose to come home, choose to apply what they know. Rich man and Lazarus. This is the last one. It's a simple parable. What laws involved? If people won't accept the truth as presented to them, a miracle will have no impact. It has no impact. Even if the dead come back to life and speak to them, which a man named Lazarus did shortly thereafter, and his witness had no impact, they still crucified Christ. If you won't accept the truth, miracles are meaningless. Now, did you notice in all of these parables of Jesus, the kingdom of God is what kind of kingdom? How does he govern? What law does his kingdom operate upon? The law of love, design law. He is not an imperial dictator. He doesn't make up rules and use power to enforce them. Over and over again, Jesus taught the reality of design law, how things actually operate. Nowhere do we find Jesus teaching penal substitution theology. Nowhere. He overthrows this concept over and over again. So are we today the remnant who are giving the testimony of Jesus? Or have we accepted the commandments of God but deny Jesus' testimony by teaching that God made up rules and if you don't obey them and keep the right day, then God will have to punish you. And you're actually working against God and denying Jesus' testimony. The lesson on Sunday points out various symbols of God's word. Let's look at the symbols real quick and the lessons we can learn from them. First is the lamp. God's word is, is symbolically a lamp. What do lamps do? They give light so that we can see and move forward. We're on a trail. We're on a path. We're in the dark. We have a lamp. We can see. But how far forward can we see with a lamp? Has anybody ever used a lamp? <coughs> how far forward with just a lamp that burns a little flame can you see? Just a short way. But if you take a step in the direction of the light and you move forward, what happens if you're holding the lamp? More light, and you can keep moving forward. But what happens if you won't move? If you just hold, you're stuck. This is a beautiful example of God's word. God's word reveals truth to you wherever you're at in your station. Truth that you can apply to your life and take a step forward in the truth. And as you take a step forward in the truth, more light will come. You'll see the next step. You'll see the next step. But you will stay stuck if you don't apply the truth. And move forward in it. And eventually, you will lose the ability to discern truth. Fire, God's word is, uh, is uh, metaphorically described as a fire. What does fire do? It consumes what? In, in, in the biblical model. It consumes sin in the biblical model. Whatever's out of harmony with God. So it cleanses. Remember, gold tried in the fire. Gold does not get consumed by fire. All the impurities get consumed when gold is put in the fire. Okay, and we and we have the character of Christ. So when we go on the fire, so to speak, of God's word, the truth comes in and burns out the lies, burns out the distortions in our minds, burns out the false practices, purifies us in heart, in mind, in understanding. The gold is purified. That's what the fire does. It purifies. It convicts of sinful habits and practices that we are freed from. But fire also warms, gives heat, 
gives energy, and fire spreads. So when we're on fire with God's Word and for God's Word, we bring warmth and sometimes heat to our environment. We're energized for action, and the fire spreads. This is one of the reasons why God is frustrated with the Laodicean church. Because they're not on fire. They're lukewarm. And he says he wants to vomit them out of his mouth. It's nauseating. And what's lukewarm? How do you get lukewarm water? By running the cold tap? By running the hot tap? How do you get lukewarm water? By running them both. So what would lukewarm be applying that? It is having a certain energy or fire for God, religion, but having hearts that are not renewed, that are cold. So you're, you think you're rich and filled with goods when you're really poor, wretched, blind, and naked. I think this is the legal, penal, religious systems that are on fire for their rules, but their hearts are not renewed. They're still cold. So they're lukewarm. Seed. Um, the word of God is a seed. Seeds sometimes lie dormant until the right circumstances. We can plant seed, and it may not sprout in someone's heart for years or decades. When they do sprout, though, they always bear fruit. Sometimes, though, we spread seed into hearts that have soil where it never takes root. Our job is not to get seed to grow in people's heart. We are simply to spread the truth. Bread is another metaphor. Bread nurtures. It gives strength. And as we take bread into our body, the mo- it's actually broken down into molecules. We become building blocks to our physiology. Uh, the word of God is truths. And as we take the truths into our mind, they become building blocks that uh, form our ideas, our constructs, our belief systems, our philosophies of the world, the lenses through which we see things, our mindsets, and lead us back, hopefully, if it's the truth, to a surrendered heart to God where we open the heart and invite him in and renewed. The truth actually impacts us. Sword. The word of God is a metaphor of a sword. Swords can block attacks. You can block attack with a sword. Jesus used the sword that way in the desert when Satan was tempting him. He blocked the attack with the word of God. So we can use a sword to block an attack. Defend against those attacks. It can also pierce through defenses that somebody else has. The word of God can pierce through people's lies, through their distortion, through their denial. The truth can pierce the heart. Have you ever been pierced with the truth? It can cut deep into the heart and it can separate emotions from facts and help clarify that our emotions may be leading us the wrong way. Separating bone from marrow, separating the emotions from the realities. The, the truth can do that. And it can, a sword can kill. A sword can kill. What about the word of God? What about the truth? What happened to Judas when the truth came through to him? Did it result in ending his life. Now, the truth brought a conviction that he did not want to face or deal with. And what happens to those hardened in lies and selfishness when they are exposed to the infinite truth of God's character of love described as rivers of fire? What happens to them? 
They're tormented and ultimately don't want to live in truth. When we share the seeds of truth, the Word of God, is it required, as we share this truth, to quote a Bible verse? Can we share the truth about God's kingdom without actually quoting the Bible? Are there times when it's wise to do so? Doesn't mean we've devalued the Bible, not at all. But again, Jesus' parables were not Jesus quoting the Old Testament. And he, and he revealed truth over and over again of God's kingdom without quoting Scripture verses. Not that Jesus was averse to quoting the Scripture, and not that we should be averse to it, but it's not what we're limited to, folks. When you understand God's kingdom, you can present that kingdom in a variety of ways to people. Monday's lesson, first two paragraphs. The word of God is living is a living word. It carries with it the power to, to accomplish the things that it declares. Human words can speak of what is, but God speaks of things that are not yet done and then creates them by the power of his word. The word of God is a creative word. The audible word that proceeds from his mouth has a power to create everything that it proclaims. In the creation story of Genesis 1, the expression, God said, is used repeatedly. God's declarative words had such power that when he spoke, dry land appeared, plants sprouted, flowers blossomed, fruit trees flourished, and animals sprang forth. What do we understand this to mean? Is it the vocalizations of God that are meant in this description? Or does it refer to a person a member of the Godhead, the Word. John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So when we think about this Word that creates, is it vocalizations? In other words, if we put a gag in God's mouth, would that restrict his power to create? Some think this way, folks, really. It's magical thinking. It's incantation thinking. Get the right words said by the right, in the right way or said by the right being, and you've got power. It isn't about vocalizations. It's about the person, Jesus Christ, the living word. And it is about the truth that emanates from God and resonates through his universe. It's about reality. Think about this from the book Desire of Ages. See what you think. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He was reveal God to angels? They had face-to-face communication with him. How, how is it? What is that? They're checking him out. They've known him for millennia, maybe billions of years, and he's coming to reveal God to them? What? Why? Because Lucifer is a liar and raised doubts about God that needed answering by not declaration. Declaration can't answer those types of questions. Requires evidence. If someone alleged, maybe your brother alleged that you were embezzling money from your church, but you've never taken a penny, and you got up before the church and said, I've never done it. Is everyone convinced? No. Declarations don't convince once liars lie. Evidence is required. You have to audit the books. You have to have every penny accounted for that demonstrate nothing's been taken. Jesus came to reveal the truth because lies about God have been told. Even the loyal angels had questions. 
So keeping on. He was the word of God, God's thoughts made audible. In his prayer for his disciples, he said, I have declared thee unto them, and declared unto them your name, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. But not alone for his earthborn children was this revelation given. Our little world is a lesson book of the universe. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. It will be their study throughout endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen angels will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. Pause right there. Science means that in the cross of Christ you will find meaning of reality understanding, reason, facts, design law. You will study, comprehend, and understand, and it will be an infinite expansion of your understanding of God's character and how reality works. But it's also your song, because in the cross you're going to have your joy, your love, your heart's appreciation, your emotional expression, your, your, your um, appreciation. So both our understanding of reality and our emotional expression will be found rooted in God's character of love as revealed in Christ at the cross, our science and our song. It will be seen that the glory, back to the quote, it will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus, get your mind around this now, guys, is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life. For earth and heaven, that the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God, and that in the meek and lowly one, Jesus, is manifested the character of him who dwells in the light which no man can approach. What kind of law is described here? There's a law. What kind of law? The law of self-renouncing love is the law of life. This is the principle upon which life is built. What kind of law is that? Design law. It's how reality works. It, it's about, it isn't about proclamations or edicts or declarations or vocalizations like human rulers give. Human rulers declare, proclaim. It's about God's character of love and how reality actually works as he created it to work. That's what it's about. There's a, a quote from the book Education in the bottom of the lesson from page 126. It reads, The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the word of God. The word imparts power. It begets life. Every command is a promise. Accepted by the will, received into the soul, it brings with it the life of the infinite one, that's capitalized. It transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. Is this recreative energy that calls worlds into existence referring to vocalizations or a person? a member of the Godhead. We are to partake of the divine nature. And when we do, of what are we partaking? Are we partaking, we partake of the truth. We partake of the word. Are we partaking of more than facts and concepts? Is it just getting the right data points? Getting the right 27, 28 listed? Maybe we'll have to add a 29th because we're not quite there yet. Is, is it getting the right facts? Is that, is that partaking of the word? Is that what it means? The right doctrines? When we partake of the truth, experience a trust relationship with God, 
apply his methods to our lives, do we not also, in addition to learning something cognitively, get changed in our heart attitude? A change of mind, a change of character. And when we get that change, do we simultaneously experience a physiological change? The answer is yes, our brains change. They rewire. Old pathways are deleted. New pathways are are formed. Resonance patterns change. Does this bring us actually in a closer intimacy with God? Can we become so close to God that we begin to resonate on some quantum level that God designed life to operate upon? Is there some actual literal connection between God and God's creation that God designed and built into his universe that goes beyond just agreeing with the ideas, the values, and the beliefs? Is it part of our practice, our attitude? What happened to Moses on the mountain when he came down? What was going on with his face? From what? Was it flames? Did he get some lighter fluid, squirt on his whiskers, light them on fire when he came down? Is that what they saw? Where was these uh, flames, this fire, this, this, this brightness coming from? They couldn't tolerate it. It caused them agony. They had, to, they had to cover it. Where was it coming from? How was it glowing on Moses' face? What was the process there? Was it magic? Was it a natural process? Design law. Something about Moses came into such harmony with God. He was so close to him on some level, we can't fully understand that God's energies, God's life was flowing into Moses. And he was radiating it. What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? How did Elijah and Moses look there? According to the description. Remember, these are still human beings. Now, of course, in their eternal bodies. But we would say in their eternal bodies, they are now in perfect harmony with God, aren't they? Perfect harmony now. And what did they look like according to the apostles' descriptions in the Gospels? As bright as suns. They were as bright as the sun. That's how bright they were shining. Do you think they were flaming? They were as bright as the sun, but do you think they were having nuclear and uh, uh, some type of uh, fission going on in their body where, where molecules were being melted and, and likes going on in our... Do you think that was what was happening? No, this wasn't combustion. What's happening? Are they now so close to God that God's life-giving energy flows through them? It radiates them. What did Adam and Eve, what were they clothed in before their fall? Robes of light. Where was the light coming from? Did they have a Westinghouse uh, or Phillips back then that they bought all these LED lights and strung on their body? This light is coming from where? Was it coming from them? Or were they so united in their innocence with God that his life energy was flowing through them? Do you understand you're built? Created, designed, constructed by God to be a dwelling place for his presence. Sin severs the connection, alienates us from God, causes fear, distrust. Truth destroys lies, brings us back to trust, so that in that relationship with God, we are restored into harmony, united with him, we will again one day shine. So when Jesus says, let your light so shine before men, I think he was not just speaking of let your truth and, and 28 fundamental beliefs be broadcast before men. 
I think he was talking about the light of your life. And the closer that you come to him, you actually become, have you seen people that were kind of bright? Maybe they weren't like Moses where you had to put a, but you saw they were bright. Have you seen people in sin that are dark? They have no light shining from them. I think there's a reality here we don't fully comprehend. And God wants to restore us to that unity. It's very exciting if you think about partaking of the word, partaking of the truth connects us with Christ. And there's some aspect of that reality that we begin to resonate as the spirit dwells in us. I think it's exciting. What do you think? Tuesday's lesson, benefits of scripture. What benefit have you had from studying the word of God? It talks about there are multiple benefits in the word of God uh, in the lesson. Uh, and uh, it actually describes in here that by beholding Jesus, we become changed. It's a law, both for the intellectual and spiritual nature, that by beholding, we become changed. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subject upon which it's allowed to dwell. What law is being described? It says it's a law. What law? This is design law, law of worship. We become like what we worship, admire, and dwell upon. This is a design law. It's not a rule. It's how reality works. I was really excited to see that they put that in there. How do we apply this idea that if you study Scripture, if you spend your time meditating on the Word of God, you become more like Christ with the uh, Jesus words in John 5? You diligently study the Scriptures because you think in them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. These guys studied Scripture. Were they becoming more like Jesus? Well, why not? If we study Scripture, we become more like Jesus. Is it possible to study Scripture, make it your entire career, maybe go to college and get a degree, a doctoral degree in theology, and still not become like Christ, be his enemy, in fact? How is that possible? How are these doctors of the Bible not becoming like Christ? They had wrong premises as they approached the Scripture. Uh, They had premises that God's law works like human law, and they're looking for the right rules to keep. They thought salvation was found in law-keeping, or salvation was found in ritual application, or salvation was found in sacrifice, or, or that salvation was found in belonging to the right group, like the right denomination, maybe. Rather than understanding Scripture as a revelation of God, this is what teaches of me. You won't come to me. You want to make your list of rules and your system of religion your systematic theology that you want to keep. I'm going to have to jump ahead. Wednesday's lesson, I'm going to get to this point in Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph, someone has counted uh, more than 3,000 promises in the Word of God. Each of these promises come from the heart of a loving God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in him. The promises of God are commitments that he makes to each one of us. As we claim these promises by faith, and teach other people to claim them, the blessings of heaven flow into our lives. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the divinity, the the divine reality in Romans 8, he who did not spare a son but delivered him up for us, how will he not along with him give us all things? The Apostle Peter clarifies this promise, declaring that his divine power has been given to us, has, has been given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So everything necessary for godliness and spiritual life is promised to us. I like the, the emphasis that God's promises are to give us everything necessary for victory over sin and have eternal life. What does it mean that the Bible is filled with promises? Think that through. What does it mean that the Bible is filled with promises? Well, it certainly means that God is reaching out to us, that he loves us, he has our good at heart, he is filled with infinite blessings for us, 
But why does God make promises? When is a promise necessary? Or another way to ask it is, what is the purpose of giving a promise? Isn't it to instill confidence in the one to whom the promise is given? Isn't that the reason for it? To instill confidence in the person you're making the promise to. Confidence in you. So why all the promises in the Bible? Because humanity is filled with so many lies and so much distrust of God. You get that? Yes. Promise, promise, I 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 promise. God is constantly promising us because we constantly don't trust him and don't know him. When we come to know him, he doesn't have to promise, we know. We have life eternal that they might know you, the only true God. I am thankful the Bible is filled with promises because I've needed them too. It reveals who God is. But what about the idea that Bible promises are made to each one of us? The Bible promises are made to each one of us. You know, if it's the sense that they reveal God's trustworthiness and that we can look at those promises in the Bible and we can then have confidence in God as we see that he keeps his promises, then I would agree that's true, that they're given to us to help us. But I would not agree that each promise is applicable to each one of us. For instance, is the promise that the Savior would be your descendant made to you? Or that God would make a promise that your descendant will reign on your throne forever? Is that made to you? No, not every promise is made to you personally, but you can still see that God keeps his promise. And, you, and so that promise being made and fulfilled gives you confidence in God. Are some promises conditional? The, the promise of salvation, it's both unconditional and conditional. Let me explain that. It's unconditional in that God promised in Eden that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head and the Messiah would redeem Adam's sin and save the species human. That was unconditional. Christ was going to come and fulfill that. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the human species was saved. Satan was defeated. And because of Jesus being fully human, humanity, the species God created in Adam, was saved. Did everybody get that? As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. And simultaneously, he provided what was necessary for as many specimens of humanity that would so choose to partake of what he achieved so they can also have salvation. That's conditional on our participation. And it's conditional because if we don't choose it, and God were somehow trying to download it or enforce it into us, he would erase us. We have to choose it to maintain our individuality and our identity. It takes our participation, our acceptance, our agreement, our valuing, our loving, in order for our individuality to be transformed by Christ's achievement. And then the lesson points out that God's promises are for our physical needs. There's a couple of points in these promises I want to get through. Why did so many Jews stop believing in God after the Holocaust? Because many of them prayed the promises of the Old Testament. And they or their family, obviously, their family weren't delivered because... They were their survivors. The survivors lost so many family members, they gave up a belief in God because of this. Why were Christians in the Dark Ages martyred if God's promises are for our physical needs? Because the promises are... Uh, God, God does not promise in every circumstance that he'll deliver you from difficulty. In fact, he actually told them that you will have trials and difficulties and you'll be uh, persecuted, and some that persecute and kill you will do it in God's name. So that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of all the promises. And then the last paragraph, there are many wonderful promises in God of God in the Bible. When by faith we claim the promises of God, 
of the word of God and believe them because Christ has promised the blessing of those promises becomes ours. It is a lack of faith in God's ability to do what he has promised in his word that limits the fulfillment of God's promise in our lives. Do you understand the corruption of that statement? Now, there's a certain truth to it. Here's the truth to it. It's true that if we have no faith in God, we deny him. We don't want him in our life. We're in rebellion against him. We're living actively sinful lives that we are obstructing God's ability to work in our life. That's true. Okay? So that's true. Does everyone make sense on that? However, the paragraph could lead to the false conclusion, the way it's written, that if one doesn't experience a miracle, then they only don't experience the miracle because they don't have enough faith. They don't trust enough. They don't believe enough. It's their lack of faith that God can't act for them. And thus, it only compounds their sense of inadequacy, guilt, sin in their life. And in my book, The God-Shaped Brain, I actually have a whole section where I describe this distortion and uh, point out that through Bible history, in fact, most of the time that miracles occurred... They were for the weak in faith, not for the strong in faith. Gideon asked for the miracle of the fleece because his faith was confident and strong or it needed boosting. Elijah on Mount Carmel called for the fire to fall because for Elijah, was it Elijah's need for that fire or was it for the people? And the people needed the fire because they had strong faith in God or they had serious doubt on who was God. It was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace and were miraculously delivered. Now, certainly they benefited from it, but was the miracle for them? It was for who? Nebuchadnezzar, whose faith was weak. Okay? It was through the strong in faith. God works miracles through Elijah who was strong in faith. God works miracles through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who trusted him. But for the weak in faith. You find this over and over again. There's more examples in the notes. And so... As you think about this, those who are strong in faith, like the apostles who all died as martyrs except John, had so much faith and trust in God, they didn't need a miracle to maintain their faith. Do we know God well enough that our confidence will not be shaken when he doesn't miraculously intervene? Genuine faith is not having confidence that God can perform miracles, but trusting him enough and uh, that he doesn't need to perform the miracle. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, I want to thank you again so much for your goodness and love and the way you run your kingdom and, and all the truths you have revealed and what Jesus has accomplished and, and help us to be brought ever more in harmony with you that our spirit temples can be an abiding place for your presence, that we can shine forth, not just the concepts of truth, but boy, do we long for the day that we can shine the radiance of your glory in our own beings because we're so close to you. We ask for the fulfilling of your purposes in our lives and show us how we can be more effective at this time in history, we pray in your holy name. Amen.